1: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. In Fictions of Credit in the Age of Shakespeare, published by Oxford University Press in 2021, Laura Kolb examines how Shakespeare and his contemporaries represented credit-driven artifice and interpretation on the early modern stage. Laura Kolb is an assistant professor of English at Baruch College, the City University of New York. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Salman. I'm glad to be here.
1: So, to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: So, this book um, grew out of my dissertation, um, and my dissertation grew kind of by chance um, out, <laughs> of a, out of out of a research trip. So, I received um, some funding. Um, uh, from my department when I was a graduate student to go to the British Library and to look for texts related to my dissertation topic, which uh, at the time was money, um, was material wealth. I really wanted to sort of think about how people uh, wrote about, talked about coins and treasure and um, and when I went to the library, I kept finding instead all this information on people interacting with each other. Um, and uh, just to give one example, um, so I thought a good place to start would be um, arithmetic textbooks, um, early arithmetic textbooks for merchants, for retailers, you know, people who handle coins, who handle money, who handle rich objects. Um And um, these books are full of word problems and the word problems are just full of social arithmetic. Um, They're about who to trust and when and how much and, you know, what risks to take, what risks not to take. And then I called up, um, you know, a manual for retailers. And instead of being about the products that you're selling or like how to do your accounting and those books do exist. um, But this particular book uh, turned out to be all about language, you know, how to talk to your customers. And so gradually um, and even like books on the price of bread, right, might have material on um, on sort of why to be trustworthy, how to be trustworthy, how to transact, how to deal with other people. Um, and so gradually I came to see all of this material as addressing um, the problems, the sort of paired problems at the center of the book um, of cultivating credit and of um, extending credit um, in transacting um, in what... Um, economic historian Craig Muldrew, who's a big influence in what he calls a culture of credit.
1: Right, right. And uh, could you say a little more about um, what um, what Muldrew means by a culture of credit in um, uh, during this period of English history?
0: Yeah, so um, Muldrew, uh, Craig Muldrew wrote an extraordinary book called The Economy of Obligation, and um, And it argues just right off the bat that transactions ran on credit in this period. There was a shortage of coins. Um, There was not enough physical money. And so the economy at all levels had to run on credit. Um, He actually estimates at one point that it's like 90% of transactions in England um, run on debt and credit. Um, And this means, and he writes about this a little, um, but this means... um, that reputation actually writes about this a lot. Um, (laughs) reputation becomes really important. Um, and reputation is grounded in all kinds of things, right. In how, what your neighbors think of you and how you dress and how you present yourself, um, in your sort of known past history of paying back loans or extending loans. Um, and, um, this kind of um, situation where reputation matters so much means that uh, people thought very hard um, about how to present themselves. And that would differ, right, among your neighbors, among people who knew you. And um, then it would, let's say you're um, going to the city from the country where people don't know you. Um, you need a whole different sort of set of, of ways to appear, ways to act, um, ways to talk, ways to dress. Um And so, this culture of credit, um, in my account, becomes a culture of self presentation and a culture in which people need to pay really close attention to the ways others are presenting themselves, right? You can't trust every surface that you see, but you can weigh it, you can evaluate it. Um, And so, that's kind of the basic situation.
1: Right. I have to say, just parenthetically, when I was reading your book, which was so engrossing, um, as a sociologist, when we were talking about presentation, I kept on thinking, wow, this is all about you know Irving Goffman, whose famous book, This Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, is all about how people present themselves, how people signal their status, and how other people interpret those signals, misinterpret those signals. And then I was uh, very gratified to see uh, in a footnote at the the end of the book, you mentioned explicitly the connection with
0: Goffman. Yes. Um, I I sort of discovered Goffman's work partway through the writing. Um, And I will say uh, he's an enormous influence now. And my second book project um, is is, uh, it has moved a little bit away from economics, but it is is even more firmly grounded in self-presentation and especially uh, collaborative or dialogic self-presentations when people are sort of working together to create a social reality.
1: Well, I am so glad to hear that (laughs) and look forward to reading that one. Um, That's great. So uh, back to business. Um, Speaking of business, um, so um, you talk in your book about um, the... Um, the advice that Polonius, the counselor to the king in Shakespeare's play um, uh, Hamlet, uh, the advice that Polonius gives to his son Laertes, and could you tell us a little bit about that advice and what did he get wrong uh, um, when uh, in in the advice that he gives his son?
0: Yeah. So if you're thinking about Shakespeare and you're thinking about debt and credit probably the passage that will come to mind is Polonius telling his son, and his son is about to go off to France um, from Denmark. Um, and Polonius tells him to be careful with money. And he says, neither a borrower nor a lender be. So don't take on debt and don't give out loans. Um, and he explains Himself, he says, for loan oft loses both itself and friend. So if you lend money to a friend, um, you might not get that money back, and then you also lose the friendship. And he says, borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry, and husbandry is like personal thrift, right? It's like taking care of your own um, household's resources. And he's like, if you're if you're borrowing, you're not being a, you're not being good at husbandry, um, and I begin the book with this because it's, for most people, I'd say all people, uh, in Hamlet's first audiences, this is not advice they could follow. Um, they, uh, pretty much everybody had to be a borrower from time to time, and pretty much everybody was called upon to be a lender. Um, so Polonius is in some ways wrong about credit, but he goes on to tell Laertes um how to shape himself, how to fashion himself, to invite favorable interpretations, to invite profitable interpretations. You know, he's like, dress dress richly, but don't be gaudy. like you know, let people see that you're serious as well as wealthy. Um, he talks to him about not talking too much, not expressing every thought, about being careful in his choice of friends. And all of this advice, it's very Goffmany. It's all about inviting profitable interpretation. And that's actually good advice about credit, right? That's um that's very sound. And advice that sounds like Polonius's shows up in practical texts from the period. Um, so not just in plays, but we often see the same sorts of injunctions, um, to be careful how you dress, to be careful who you hang out with, um, because all of those things feed into your credit, your reputation, how you are perceived, which is, of course, very tightly bound up in how much you can borrow when you need to.
1: right. And one thing that's interesting, thinking about Goffman or you know more generally this idea of the presentation of self of how you present yourself to other people and especially you know the idea of kind of cultivating a particular presentation so that people see you in a particular way, thinking about that, and that's clearly at the heart of um, uh, Polonius's advice to his son, um, it's curious that the end of the little speech that Polonius gives to his son, he ends off by saying, to thine own self be true. <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering how does uh, this uh, uh, admonition of Polonius mesh with the intentionally calculating quality of of um of the cultivation of oneself and the cultivation of credit.
0: Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And I will say a lot of people teaching the play or or writing criticism on the play, right? Polonius is a figure who sometimes gets made fun of a little bit. Um for um uh, for speaking in this kind of aphoristic, commonplace, a spewing tone, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be—it's—it's it's sort of flat-footed. Um, and at the end, to cap it all with, "To thine own self be true." Um, when he's giving advice, essentially about gaming the social, right? Um, um, this can seem like—I uh, think I call it in the book—a crowning contradiction because his advice feels contradictory. Um. And I think that to dismiss it as a kind of misunderstanding of his own speech, of the of the sort of, because um, he posits this sort of slippery world where you always have to be super careful, um, that to see him as not understanding the world he himself has conjured in language is a mistake. Um, and I actually think, so it's an impossible directive on the one hand. How can you be true to yourself when you are always... Um, crafting a surface that will be read by others, um, when you are always seeing yourself reflected back to you from others. Um, so yes, these things are intention. They are maybe even in contradiction. Um, but I think that there is an idealistic note there um, that is a strain that we find through uh, some of the literature on credit in the period, that you have to play this game. Um, there is no way out, um, but um, you want to try to be honest in some sense. Um, you want to try to be um, true to thine, to sort of fit with thine own self. I mean, it doesn't give advice on how to do that, but you find similar advice in. Um, uh, there's a guy, Thomas Tusser, who is a courtier in the middle of the 16th century in the, in the 15, um, in the 1500s. And he goes off to be a farmer. Um, and he writes, uh, this enormously popular book, uh, its first 100th points of good husbandry. And then he expands to 500 points in the 1570s. Um, and he, these are, the points are all, I mean, it's, it's poems. It's like little doop-de-doo rhymes, um, on, on being thrifty. Um, And he is exactly like Polonius in that he imagines this world where you might get cheated and you have to be careful how people see you, and he keeps coming back to how honest you need to be, right? Other people are crafty, and you are crafting yourself, but you are not crafty in the dishonest sense. You are somewhere on the other side of the line. Um, And Polonius and the practical texts I look at in the book tend to suggest that it's possible to, dis, dis, to dissemble, right? To produce potentially false images, but also at the same time to somehow be honest. Um, and other literature, I think, sort of says, no, that's contradictory. Um, but I don't know. I'm team Polonius here.
1: <laughs> okay. Team Polonius. Here we go. Uh, you wrote that England's culture of credit was a thoroughly er- 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 rhetoricized arena. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so... I think I could have put it more simply. Um, language mattered, <laughs> <laughs> rhetoric mattered, um, and rhetoric, um, in this sense, when I when I use it in the book, I'm often thinking of rhetoric as language directed at another person, intended to persuade, convince, move that other person. Um, And so in a way, even to go back to Polonius's advice, you know, even how you dress, right? Rich, not gaudy. That's part of the rhetorical, the persuasive side of credit. You're always kind of making an argument. Um, Language itself um, is enormously important. Um, In one of of my favorite advice texts, um, and I mentioned it, um, but I didn't name it, William Scott um, in uh, the 1630s, he writes a book called The Essay of Drapery. And drapery, it's selling cloth. Um And it's actually this very strange text. Um, it's recognizable to us in a lot of ways, because it's all about sales, right? It's all about how to get your customer to want the product, right? But what he's actually doing is repurposing it, to some extent, actual rhetorical manuals on persuasive or poetic speech—persuasive speech in the courtroom, um, poetic speech that like moves the the reader—and um, he's not necessarily citing his sources, but he's influenced by classical, you know, um, uh, rhetoricians like Quintilian like Horace. He's also wholesale borrowing essays on statecraft, which is, you know, this other sort of tricky, slippery arena from Francis Bacon. And he's packaging it all as like, here's how you do sales. Um, Here's how you talk to customers, right? Here's how you flatter without lying, uh, for instance. Um, So you you see the practical
1: and the more lofty or aspirational, uh, you know, being married in some way.
0: You do you absolutely do in that text in particular um and um that text is really different than say Thomas Tusser's five hundredth Points, which like makes a claim to plainness to not being fancy poetry, right This is like memorizable couplets um that that kind of anybody can can access
1: um all right, speaking of which I'm just curious, do we have any sense of i think you mentioned about uh uh, tusser's work being very popular but do we have any sense of how many people were reading these texts how many people were you know uh, i mean do we know how many people were literate at the time in england uh how many people maybe didn't read the text themselves but were told about the the you know the insights the wisdom that these texts contained anything like that
0: yeah so i'm not an expert on literacy rates um but I will say like Tusser's points were just constantly in print um, for like a century and a half. Um, whereas a book like William Scott's Essay of Drapery, we have one we have we we know of one edition. Um, it does not seem to have been like uh, this wildly popular thing that, you know, as economic life changed a great deal in the 17th century in England. But you still get reprints of Tusser's points. Um, um <laughs> And um, there's some evidence that uh, people absorbed them and repurposed them. Um, There's a manuscript in the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. It's part of the Kay family papers. Um, And this guy, John Kay, um, wrote out verses that are, he's copying some from Tusser. If I remember correctly, some seem like Tusser inspired. Um, And he actually writes... um, uh, you know a kind of account of his estate his father's life his life he's got a account uh, he's got actual pages that are just like accounts um so we see tusser get woven into um, at least one person's economic life and his sense of his family and their history um yeah I didn't answer the the kind of numbers part of the question but we, we do we do see that book in use
1: right right no that's fascinating um, so the chapters in your book peer plays with practical literature and analyze their relationship um, so to start off what are partnership problems and what is the relevance to Shakespeare's play Othello
0: okay um, yeah and about the these pairings so my my basic sort of methodological thesis is that because economic life depends on credit and because credit is this matter of presenting yourself and interpreting other people's uh, artifices, self-presentations, um, this creates like a kind of variable and uncertain um, set of social texts, uh, social fictions, really, and that practical texts Uh, deal with this by saying this is navigable, right? This can be dealt with. And they tend to present a particular situation and tell you how to act in that situation, whether that's through commonplace wisdom like Polonius or through a math problem. um, And plays instead kind of look at all that um, uncertainty, all that variation, and they double down and they say there's no way, right, to uh, be true to, for instance, your own self and also constantly performing for others. And so they they make that grounds often for tragedy, um, sometimes for comedy. So in the first chapter of the book, um, I look at Othello, um, Shakespeare's uh, uh, one of Shakespeare's plays set in Venice. Um, and I look at it next to um, early vernacular arithmetic texts. And um, and um, those texts, much like Shakespeare's play, um, look at um, social units structured by the need to transact, by the need to trade, right? Venice is a, is a trading hub. Um, it's um, an important port in the Mediterranean. Um, and as any English visitor to, uh, to Venice in the 16th century would tell you, right, they got a lot of stuff from all over the world, and they have a lot of people from all over the world that it is a, a kind of um uh, I hesitate to use this term but it's the one that comes to mind it's kind of it, it feels or looks like a melting pot um so um so that's Venice um math books in the period um one of the most common type of problem that math books contain is is um Uh, they're called problems of fellowship or problems of partnership. And they're about merchants who band together for a specific voyage, a specific enterprise. And you get told how much money each invests, sometimes for how much time. And then you learn what the profits are and you get asked to calculate, um, to, to basically work a problem of proportion, who gets how much. Every once in a while, one of these problems will introduce a variation. So instead of how much profit do they all get, let's say everything is lost at C, right? Um, how much has each lost at this point? Um, so you get a little bit of a sense from these problems that the world of trade is not one of sort of incalculable, not incalculable, um, uh, fully calculable uh, profits that are just always secure, right? There's the C and there's other people, Um and the problem I look at next to Othello um, is a very strange a very strange word problem. It shows up in the earliest vernacular uh, that is in English, uh, arithmetic textbook in English. It is nestled among these other partnership problems that are all about profit, sometimes about loss. Um, but you can work them mathematically with the skills taught in the book. And this problem... Um, it's called the rule and question. They all start that way. The rule and question of, um, and this is called the rule and question of the Saracens for to cast them into the sea. Um, and Saracens means uh, means Turk uh, means means Turks means Muslims. Um, so you're told at the outset the goal of this problem is to throw these people into the sea. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> oh god! But the problem starts, aside from the title, it sounds just like uh, any other partnership problem. You've got 30 merchants who are on a voyage together. um, It's some kind of shared enterprise. Um, And then a storm arises. And these merchants, um, still together, still working together, they throw all the merchandise overboard. Um, And it's clear that the ship is still in danger. And so suddenly you, the math student, are in charge. And you are told... So, we're gonna line up these 30 men and we're gonna count by nine, and every ninth man will be thrown into the sea. How are you going to line them up for to cast the Saracens into the sea? Um, and it, the, other, uh, the other characters in the word problem are very explicitly uh, flagged as Christians. Um, so, a couple things about this problem it's a, it's a very rich text, although it's only uh, about a, like, it's like less than a printed page long. Um it uh, and also it has a long history. Um it, uh that particular problem, uh it's a variation on something called the Josephus problem. It shows up in medieval manuscripts, it shows up in like American like um joke books for kids in the early 20th century. The us versus them logic of it maps onto different groups at different times. What makes this problem stand out is that it's the only one I've found that makes it specifically a merchant voyage. Um, uh, so suddenly merchandising is part of it. Um, and this throwing the goods overboard never shows up. Uh, Nothing else is ever thrown overboard except people in other versions of the problem. So I think this problem is fascinating because it, on the one hand, suggests that mercantile enterprise, um, It's got this almost utopian start. It transcends, you know, differences of race, differences of religion. These men are working together. And when that storm comes up, they still work together, right? They throw the merchandise overboard. Great. But then all of a sudden, race becomes what matters. Religion becomes what matters. And all of a sudden, there's this stark us-them logic. And that's what calculation is then based on. And I think Othello, uh, the way in which it presents Othello, um, who is black, as um, sometimes an insider, sometimes an outsider, Um, and his blackness is sometimes sort of um, um, valorized, um, idealized, and at other times put in the most denigrating, insulting terms, um, that the problem helps us sort of get a lens on that structure, that dynamic of how Othello is reckoned, is valued, um, is esteemed at different points by the same people in uh, Shakespeare's Venice.
1: All right. Wow. Wow. So interesting. Um, what are early letter writing manuals and what do they have to do with Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice?
0: Um, so letter writing manuals are among my favorite practical texts um, because they don't tell you how to write a letter, they just show you a bunch of letters. Um, so they are what we call formularies, like they are um examples you could copy. Um and in the early 17th, the letter writing manuals are a, a, an ancient form. They're certainly not new in the early 17th century, but starting in around 1603 in England. You start to get in your nice, you know, packet of of letters, and some of them are entertaining. Some of them are more useful than others. You start to get what I call debt letters, um, which are uh, just explicitly letters about borrowing and lending, but also about extending loans, right? How to do so graciously, how to deny loans without losing your friend. Because a lot of these debt letters, um, in the in the letter books, in the collections, are um, between friends. Um, And I think they tell us something about how credit worked. Because sure, it's a matter of self-presentation and how others interpret you. But it's also a matter of who you know and what they can offer you. Um, Credit was um, very much something friends shared with each other. And these letters um, sort of navigate that. They show you how to be polite, right, when you're asking for a loan. But they also sort of show you how um, uh, to balance, like, the short-term demands of thrift, like, I need money or I can't lend you money, with the long-term demands of friendship. You don't want to lose your friend just because right now they're in financial trouble and you can't help them. Um, so these letters show, like, one letter book will have letters in multiple positions, like, granting a loan, denying a loan, um, and um, they show all of these different positions you might inhabit as a person uh, over the course of your very long, hopefully, economic life. Um, and they suggest strongly, if you look at them all together, that you have to be flexible and you have to use language to sort of massage the needs of the moment against the longer term desire to remain friends and to remain friends who, who do share when possible. Um, so that's an example of a practical text saying, okay, economic life is very complicated, but there are ways to navigate it and language is, is going to be your tool. It's going to be useful. Merchant of Venice shows us in the title character, the merchant, um, someone who has absolutely no flexibility. He's like the opposite of the characters in a letter book. Um, he has a friend His friend is named Bassanio. Uh, Bassanio has spent everything he ever had, um, and he's gone into debt and he's kept spending. He dresses well. He um, feasts. He parties. He dresses his servants beautifully. Um, He looks wealthy, but it's all funded by debt. And a lot of this debt um, is owed to uh, his friend Antonio, who really believes um, that friends share everything in common. Um, and so he, unlike the letter book people, when Bassanio comes to him and is like, I need another loan, you know, he doesn't say, well, okay, well right now he does say right now my money is all tied up. I don't have any liquid cash, but instead of saying, therefore, I can't help you very politely as you would in a letter book. He says, but let's leverage my reputation. Like, let's go see what my name can get you. Um, so, um, we get sort of the, uh, the kind of s- adherence to a single way of being, uh, in that character. Whereas in the letter books, we get lots of flexibility.
1: Right. Right. And, uh, what is the rich beggar and how does Shakespeare's play time in of Athens shed light on this figure?
0: Yeah. So rich beggar, that is, um, Francis Bacon's phrase, um, uh, or maybe it's, Burley's phrase, both, um, both of these sort of statesmen um, describe rich beggars and inward beggars. Um, and what they're talking about um, is someone who, who looks rich, right, who has a surface appearance of wealth, but that wealth is funded by debt. So Bassanio from The Merchant of Venice, if you didn't know him, he looks wealthy. Um, but what you're actually seeing, all of his fine clothes and his servants' liveries are indices not of heaps of money in his coffers, they're indices of lots and lots of debt, lots and lots of uh, things bought on credit. Um, And so um, writers like Bacon and like Burley like warn you against a surface appearance of wealth because it might be underwritten by debt. Um, and it might it's like a credit bubble that might burst because if uh, if um, so in the play Tymon of Athens, the central character Timon is living like this incredibly lavish life and he is generous and he gives gifts gifts um, um, and he feasts everyone he knows. And he's been borrowing. He's not really aware how much he's been borrowing. He doesn't really think about his household finances. He's got people for that. And then at one point, one of his creditors starts adding up what he thinks time and owes to everybody. And then the other creditors start doing that too. And they basically all make a run on him at once. They all say, hey, give me what you owe me. And suddenly, everything is revealed to just have been debt. He's full of, as one period writer puts it, these rich beggars are full of nothing else but debt. Looks full, is empty.
1: Right, right. And um, yeah, very, very, very interesting. Um, uh, How does Ben Johnson's play Valpone exemplify the overlap between 17th century poetic theory and commercial abundance?
0: Okay, so Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's contemporary, um, um, I think treats debt In a really interesting way uh, in his play, Um, it's it's the full title is Volpone or the Fox. And, you know, a fox is a very clever person. Um, And the central character, Volpone, the fox like man, um, he loves gold. Um, He loves wealth. And when he holds his gold, when he sort of touches his gold in the play's first scene, um, he sort of speaks this amazing poem to his gold. Um, and I think that this scene, this moment where he describes his golden this sort of pileup of metaphors and similes, and it's like, yes, he's holding this rich object, but he's imagining even, you know, greater riches. Um, that this is a trope um, on stage, especially, where a character sort of holds some kind of rich object and spouts poetry. Um, and you know, why do they do this? Um, and in some ways, this is where the book started back when I was trying to sort of track like money and gold and like what how it's related to sort of uh, outpourings of words. Um, and I think it's in part um, to do with uh, the way um, poetry was often figured in the period as a a better world, um, Philip Sidney actually called it a golden world. Um, he didn't mean filled with money. Um, but those two things slide into each other, right. For, for characters like Volpone, for Volpone, a golden world, a better world is just one with more gold in it. Um, and in that play, the sort of fantasy of that play is that all of his wealth, which keeps growing because people keep giving him gifts, um, that there's no debt in his household, that he owes nothing to anyone and no one owes anything to him. And so it's this sort of fantasy of pure possession, of pure material stuff that unlike in Timon of Athens's case, and I think the plays are very much in dialogue, right? Timon's house is full of stuff, Falpone's house is full of stuff, but in one case, the stuff is itself. And in the other case, the stuff is debt or is owed.
1: Right, right. And, um could you tell us a little bit about Christopher Marlowe's play Jew of Malta and how it influenced uh, Johnson's play Valpone?
0: Yeah. So um, the Jew of Malta, which is a big influence on both um, Shakespeare and Ben Johnson, um, kind of plays in the period that are about money, debt, and credit. They they owe something uh, to, to Marlowe and to the Jew of Malta. Um, and the Jew of Malta opens more or less uh, with the central character, um, Barabbas. He's in his counting house um, where he does his accounts, his accounting. And he's got um, uh, lots of coins, lots of money in there with him. And he's uh, he's adding it up and he's calculating profits. So he's, he's doing math, um, to take it back to math books. Um, and he stops. He kind of, I mean, if I were staging it right, he would look around at all this money around him and in his account book. And he calls it trash. You know, he says, what a, what a trouble it is to count this trash. And he says it tires out his fingers. And he enters into a kind of imaginative, poetic um, space where he's thinking about richer objects, like jewels that he could gather. You know, instead of these coins, he would have jewels. Um, and instead of um, goods that come from, you know, nearby places, he's imagining um uh, you know, the, he's mentioning India, right? He's mentioning shores further off and richer goods flowing to him. So he's already a wealthy man and he's got goods from a big, you know, a chunk of the known world, but he wants more and he wants better. Um, and this sort of um, uh, peak of the speech uh, is he imagines um, infinite riches held in a little room. Um, so to be able to encapsulate To do no counting, right? To do no adding up and to have something that captured the infiniteness and variety of the whole world of trade in itself that could be held in the hand. And he's sort of ravished by this idea. And I think Johnson comes back to that with Volpone, who wants to sort of touch his gold and experience that same kind of sense of full possession but also imaginative expansion, um, through language, through poetry. All
1: right. I, I'm just curious as an aside. Um, so, uh, the, uh, Marlowe's the Jew of Malta, of course, the central character is this Jew, uh, And uh, Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice, uh, a central character, if not the central character, is uh, uh, Shylock, is a Jew. Um, And I'm curious, is there some significance to the fact that when we're talking about uh, literature of that period and we're talking about money and we're talking about credit, that Jews show up as central characters in, in these narratives?
0: Yeah, and um, um, in the case, so in in both uh, Jew of Malta and Merchant of Venice, um, it is because um, Jewish people could lend money at interest, um, whereas Christians could not um, in in these societies. Um, and um, the uh, Merchant of Venice is, I think, it, the Jew of Malta is more kind of just openly like racist. Um, it's um, Garbus is wronged. He's uh, he's His money is taken from him wrongly by the state. We feel for him. He is definitely a victim, but then he immediately becomes a villain, um, seeking all kinds of lavish forms of revenge. Um, uh, Shylock is a more complicated figure. Um, the play's sort of in-group, the central white Christian characters, um, it's a little like Othello in that he's to some extent, you know, accepted, invited to dinner, um, but then push comes to shove. Um it, they, um, they insult him. They revel in his pain uh, when he is disenfranchised, when he loses his wealth. Um, uh, but that play, what I think the sleight of hand that it does so interestingly, um, is that it pretty much constantly condemns what it calls usury, right? His money lending. And at the same time, it's set in a commercial city. You can't run trade. You can't run Venice without interest-bearing loans. And that's known right? That's not, a, that's not like a secret in the period. Um, but the play sort of presents it as possible to separate these things out, that you can have Antonio, the good merchant who somehow has never had to like take an interest-bearing loan, and his friends, and all the credit that they extend to each other is all friendly, right? Is all informal. And then on the other hand, you have Shylock with his formal loans, with his interest. Um, and in reality... These economies cannot be separate, that someone like Bassanio cannot sort of craft himself as this creditworthy rich surface without some, you know, on some level, the wealth that Shylock is bringing in to the city.
1: Hmm. Very, very interesting. Um, how does Ben Jonson's late play, *The Magnetic Lady*, exemplify the shift in the economy towards abstract capital and away from tangible wealth?
0: So, *The Magnetic Lady* is the last of my plays that, like, is sort of in touch with *The Jew of Malta*, um, and it has a central character who, like Shylock and like Barabbas, is a moneylender. He's what an earlier play would have termed i um, just straight up a usurer, um, And in fact, the in the printed version of the play, he is called that in the sort of cast list at the beginning, the list of the persons that act. And he's called a money bod, you know, someone who makes money breed come somehow illicitly. But when you meet him, uh, he is very clearly a, a finance guy. Um, he is um, giving um, large-scale loans to companies like the East India Company. Um, he's financing like big commercial enterprise. He profits, they profit, um, and the household at the center of the play um, has been made wealthy by precisely the kind of voyage that he um, uh, that he funds. Where this play is different, though. Um, He's not unlike uh, Barabbas with his um, uh, many, many coins, right? Or uh, Shylock who has money to hand. Um, he just has—he uh, just has numbers. Um, his wealth is uh, is abstracted, um, and he has. Um, uh, it's clear that uh, he's not sort of doing. Unlike Barabbas, he's not doing these calculations by hand. He's got some kind of tool, some kind of early slide rule or printed table of interest. And we know this because one of the other characters says that he uses logarithms to calculate profits. Logarithms are new. Um, So they sort of come onto the scene in 1617. The play is 1632. And in those intervening years, um, uh, so they have a lot of practical applications. Um, Logarithms, basically, um, they help you, they reduce the amount of calculation you have to do. Um, uh, They reduce, um, as one period writer sort of advertising them says, they're like, you don't have to multiply anymore. You just have to add. You don't have to, you know, divide. You just have to subtract. Um, So they make calculation easier. Um, And um, that helps in navigation. Um, But it also helps in calculating compound interest. And so these two big sort of areas of early modern trade, right, sailing uh, with your goods, but also figuring out, um, going back to those partnership problems, like who gets what at the end, Um, especially if loans um, are interest-bearing through time and that interest is compounding, that can be very complicated to calculate. And between 1617, when these sort of come onto the scene, and 1632, when the play comes out, this new genre of... um, of uh, math book sort of comes onto the scene, and it's the the table of interest um, that is uh, that the maker of the table sat down with logarithms and figured out um, uh, uh, how you might want to work every problem that you might want to work, and so you don't have to do any math at all. You just look in this big grid um, and you find uh, you find the number you're looking for, and you work from that. And that's what I think Sir Moth interest has. So instead of gold numbers. And instead of sort of infinite riches in a little room, he's got a little book um, that that helps him calculate. It's essentially a proto-calculator.
1: Right. And Sir Math Interest is the, the central character in the play, The Magnetic Lady.
0: Yes. He is. He's the um, if the play does have a villain, he is the villain. Um, because what he wants is infinite wealth. He wants his numbers to keep growing. Um, and uh, he has possession of a chunk of wealth that is supposed to be a young woman's dowry. And he does not want to withdraw that um, from, uh, from the economy where it is circulating and growing and growing. And, you know, it's, it's uh, part of these mercantile voyages that he's funding. Um, and um, he is supposed to give that dowry back to her, but with all the interest that it has accrued. Um, Which is an enormous amount of money. Um, And so the play is largely about sort of resting this big sum out of his hands and legally attaching it to uh, not not the not the poor young woman who has almost no say, um, but the man who ends up marrying her. Um, And that man, um, his name is Compass. Um, He's also associated with mathematical learning, but he doesn't do like the grubby math of calculating interest. He does, you know, the noble math of navigation. Um, He's associated with a navigational uh, instrument, the compass. Um, It's strongly suggested he's um, a university-trained mathematician rather than kind of a marketplace-trained one uh, like Moth Interest. And so once again, as in Merchant of Venice the play sort of pushes uh, claims that there's a kind of moral separation between the sphere of um, of borrowing and lending at interest and the sphere of kind of noble trade, merchandising, um, when in fact, um, and both plays also acknowledge this, they're just sort of, the, it's intention. Um, those spheres are not separate. They need each other. They rely on each other.
1: Right. I'm curious,
0: was there a lot
1: of, um, like in the, in the, the the practical economic literature at the time was there a similar kind of, um, of, of focus or, or or idea that you can separate the kind of grubby, dirtier, morally compromised aspect of the economy with the more lofty and and um, elevating aspect of it.
0: So sometimes you see. Uh, uh an almost comical separation. Um, so um, there's a very prolific uh, writer of math books um, in the middle of the 1600s, uh, uh, Wingate, Edmund Wingate. And he uh, makes uh, multiple, he, he makes use of logarithms. And he has one book that uses logarithms um, that is all about interest basically and then he has another that doesn't even mention interest um as something you could uh you could calculate with this um and that may be in part because he's aiming them at different audiences doing different economic activities Um, but there's certainly to me a sense that like sometimes we don't mention this Um, you do find in straight up tables of interest um you often get prefatory material that's like am i teaching you how to do usury I don't know, what is usury? Um, Maybe I'm a bad book, but the world is bad. Um, So you get this kind of, and also usury, it really depends who's talking, how it's defined, right? The line between a loan that counts as usury and the loan that doesn't shifts around. It might be the amount of interest. It might be whether it's compound or simple. and often these books that are all about how to calculate interest will just like put their hands up and say, maybe usury is bad. Maybe this isn't usury. I'm just a book. Um, <laughs> and um, and you need me to transact, right? You need me uh, because increasingly, you know, as the numbers get bigger and the math gets harder, um, uh, you're not doing it yourself, right? You are relying on these printed tools, these these." Um, almost these tables that function like calculators. Um, And so uh, they don't necessarily tell you how to feel about your loans, um, but uh, they tell you how to do them.
1: All right, it's funny. It almost reminds me of these um, companies in America during the the era of Prohibition in the nineteen twenties, where they would produce grape products that could be added with you know water and some other you know household ingredients, and could produce wine. But it was illegal to sell uh, wine or things that could produce wine. So they would have these packaging that would say, "Make sure do not add sugar and leave." in a you know quiet place for two weeks or you will have wine and like you know and there's this kind of farce and fiction about what is really being sold and why people are buying it because of course they were buying it to make wine but they had to pretend like that's not why people were buying it
0: well that's a fabulous analogy yeah yeah
1: (laughs) Okay. There you have it. Um, um, so we are coming towards the end of our time today. I'm curious um, uh, if you could say something about whether poetry and rhetoric still has something uh, to say about 21st century economics.
0: I think so. Um, I think we tend to think of our economic lives as sort of separate from our, the way we speak. Um, the way we interact with people around us. And it's definitely true that our credit as reputation, right? Um, it no longer comes from our immediate interlocutors. It's no longer sort of structured in every situation we enter into. Um, you know, our, we have credit scores and those are calculated by all kinds of data points that we have some control over and not a lot. And um, um, and credit scores are also rhetorical fictions, right? I can say, you know, I have X number and, and you feel differently about me. <laughs> um, but I think um, if you think about, and I, I teach a lot of students who, who work in business, um, who, who want to have careers in business, and a lot of this resonates with them because they were like, oh, this matters in the workplace, right? You need um, to cultivate um, uh, a credit worthy self, a credit worthy reputation, but you also, and this is the lesson that I think has really trickled down to, um, to, uh, to business books, um, is that you have to always be reading other people, right? You have to always, so Francis Bacon, the, the essayist in the 16th, 17th century, um, he says all practice. So being practical, that's what practice means for him. So all practical life is to discover or to work. And he means to discover things about other people or to work on them, right? Um, And that, I think, is something um, that very much sort of permeates certain professional contexts, um, as does the kind of happier poetic um, uh, sort of Horace set of poetry, right? If if you want to make someone feel something, you have to feel it yourself. Um, And I think that's uh, a big part of, of Sales, uh, advertising, um, but also sort of any kind of impassioned presentation that you give to get your point of view across, which of course is a big part of professional life as well. So I think it's all—it's all poetry all the way down.
1: <laughs> right, right. Very, very interesting. Um, okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you for taking the time to share thoughts with us today.
0: Thank you so much. This was great.
1: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.